This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Due to the graphic nature and descriptions of this mystery, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussion of murder, torture, and strong language that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On March 3, 1935, the Kansas City Journal-Post put out a special announcement. The man who had claimed to be Roland T. Owen was to be buried the following day in a potter's field. The police had come no closer to identifying Owen's true identity or his murderer. With no one to claim the body... Owen would be buried in a pauper's grave. Then, on the evening of March 3rd, the Melody McGilley Funeral Home received an anonymous phone call from someone who promised to send funds for a proper funeral. True to their word, a special delivery arrived at the Melody McGilley Funeral Home several weeks later. The funeral director ripped off the newspaper wrapping to discover enough cash for a proper funeral and burial. There's a lot to be said for generosity, especially when an anonymous philanthropist might also be a murderer. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. This is our final episode on the mystery of Room 1046, where we examine the case of an unidentified man who was brutally tortured and murdered in his hotel room. If you like the show, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Thursday. While you're there, we'd greatly appreciate a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, and at Parcast.com. Last week, we walked through the events leading up to the morning of January 4, 1935, and the horrific scene awaiting hotel staff at the Hotel President. 
On the 10th floor, in room 1046, a man registered as Roland T. Owen was tortured and subsequently died from his injuries. Refusing to name his murderer, Owen's case gripped Kansas City, then a nation, with its seemingly endless twists and turns. Today, we'll shed some light on the victim's identity and explore some of the most popular theories on who murdered this man. When we left off, Robert Lane, an employee of the Kansas City Water Department, had unsuccessfully attempted to explain to detectives how he had met Owen. According to Lane, it was around 11 p.m. the night of January 3rd. Lane was traveling down 13th Street, near what is now known as the Forgotten Homes District, when he was flagged down by a strange man in his undershirt on the side of the road. Lane offered the man a ride into town and noted that his new passenger was injured, the extent to which he couldn't tell. Lane dropped the man off near a taxi. He wouldn't see his mysterious passenger again until he attended the public viewing of Roland T. Owen's body four days later. The strange story of Owen running along a dark road late at night didn't seem believable to police. Without any other witnesses to corroborate the story, investigators dismissed Lane's version of events. However, while viewings of Owen's body continued, police used every other means at their disposal to discover his true identity. Detectives revisited old testimonies and were eventually led to the Mulebach Hotel. There, they discovered that a man from Los Angeles, fitting Owen's description, had signed into the register under the name Eugene K. Scott. Detectives sent another query to the Los Angeles Police Department. As it happened with the alias Roland T. Owen, police found that no one named Eugene K. Scott existed in Los Angeles. These two aliases were suspicious. They suggested either hidden motives or a true fear of discovery. And considering Owen's horrific death, perhaps he had been right to use these monikers. But why did he have need of alternatives in the first place? Desperate to learn more, detectives used wire services to spread the story across the country in hopes that someone might recognize the events or Owen's general description. The use of wire services wasn't without its drawbacks. With more attention came a mass of unfiltered inquiries and leads. This onslaught of new information became more of a hindrance than a help. These inquiries often contained no description or photograph of the missing person, which only added more headaches. Additionally, the Kansas City Police Department sent letters and telegrams to various major police departments across the country. This allowed the Kansas City authorities to coordinate their efforts with other cities and eliminate false leads faster. Finally, police came across a sliver of information they thought might actually be valuable. A man with Owen's description had been spotted at various bars with two women in the Kansas City area. The specifics of this lead have been lost to time, but it must have been compelling enough for detectives, desperate for any information, to take the story and run with it. Sadly, the detectives weren't able to find any trace of the women Owen had been seen with, nor further information on why he was out with either of them. At their wit's end, detectives turned their attention to Don, the man Owen seemed to be constantly meeting and speaking with during his ill-fated stay at the hotel president. According to testimony by Mary Soptic, 
a maid at the hotel president, Don and Owen had been in constant contact. First mentioned in a handwritten note by Owen, and then again in a phone conversation the following morning, detectives saw Don as their primary suspect. Perhaps he had even been the gruff voice that had sent Mary Soapdick away when she had returned with fresh towels on January 2nd. Or perhaps Don had been the man in brown that had accompanied the woman in black in the elevator the night of the 4th. Unfortunately, despite attention from authorities, neither mysterious figure was ever found. Public viewings of Owen's body began on Sunday, January 7th, and continued throughout the week. A few days after the viewings started, Ernest Johnson of Kansas City came forward and identified Owen's body as his missing cousin, Harvey Johnson. Excited about any break in the case, police rushed to find and bring Johnson's sister in to view the body. When she arrived, she regretfully informed the investigators that her brother had died five years earlier. Today, in the era of Facebook, this might sound like an impossible mistake, but in 1935, when separated family members only ever communicated once every few years, it seems a little more understandable. Despite Owen's uncanny resemblance to her dead brother, the investigators were forced to move on. A few days later, on the night of Friday, January 12th, another story surfaced. Tony Bernardi, a wrestling promoter out of Little Rock, Arkansas, recognized Owen. He told investigators that Owen had approached him several weeks earlier to sign up for some wrestling matches. If Bernardi did allow Owen to register, it's not clear whether he lived long enough to actually compete. The man gave his name as Cecil Warner. Sources are not clear on whether detectives followed up on the alias or whether they simply assumed that it was likely a fake and moved on. At this point, Roland T. Owen had used no fewer than three different identities. This was not a man who wanted to be found. Investigators took Bernardi's claims seriously. They recalled that Owen had a cauliflower ear on his left side, a minor disfigurement of the ear common in professional athletes, particularly boxers and wrestlers. Bernardi himself had two cauliflower ears after a semi-successful wrestling career. Bernardi went on to explain that Owen had claimed to have wrestled for a man named Charles Locke out of Omaha. The very next day, on January 13th, names and pictures were sent to Omaha. Locke informed authorities that no one who looked like Owen or went by any of the names police provided had wrestled for him. Owen had lied. A picture of Owen's actions were beginning to form. From parts unknown, Owen had come to Kansas City in an effort to chase his dreams of becoming a professional athlete. With no real experience, Owen had lied to a promoter in hopes of landing his first real match. But this had occurred several weeks prior to his murder. So why the secrecy? Had Owen been under an assumed name before he came to Kansas City? What had he been doing since his denied wrestling endeavors? On Tuesday, January 15th, Two of the detectives on Owen's case were reassigned. The night before, two men had been murdered across town, and with the trail still hot, authorities believed police resources were better spent elsewhere. Two months passed. By March 3rd, the investigation lost all momentum. Authorities resigned themselves to another cold case and allowed the Kansas City Journal-Post to report plans to bury Owen in a potter's field the next day. 
Ironically, it was giving up that gave police their next lead. Less than a day after the story ran, a phone in the Journal Post editorial office rang. An anonymous woman on the other end of the line chastised the editor, saying, quote, You have a story in your paper that is wrong. Roland Owen will not be buried in a pauper's grave. Arrangements have been made for his funeral. The editor pressed for more information. Who was she? What did she know about Owen or his death? The woman deflected and said, quote, He got into a jam before hanging up. Meanwhile, across town, a mysterious male caller informed the funeral director at Melody McGilley that they would pay for Owen's funeral and burial. The caller made the funeral director promise to bury Owen in Memorial Park Cemetery. It's important to note that both the male and female caller used Roland T. Owen as the name they gave to others. This suggests that they knew him by that name and believed the alias to be true. The man elaborated, claiming that Owen should be buried to, quote, be near my sister, end quote. Whether this meant his sister had been buried or merely wanted to visit was left unclear. The funeral director informed him that he would have to let the police know about the call, but the mysterious caller didn't appear to sound worried. Instead, he seemed to want to set the record straight. The man said that Owen had jilted a woman he had planned to marry and that the three of them had a little meeting at the hotel president. He continued, cheaters usually get what's coming to them. Then he hung up. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now back to our story. It was the night of March 3rd, 1935, nearly two months after the murder of Roland T. Owen. Two important calls in the Roland T. Owen case had gone out that day. One call went to the Kansas City Journal-Post, while the other went to the Melody McGilley Funeral Home. But a third call was yet to come. Sometime before closing, a phone in the office of the Rock Floral Company rang. A man's voice on the other end of the line asked that 13 American Beauty roses were sent to Roland T. Owen's funeral. The florist pressed for details. When would they like the bouquet delivered? Who should they put with sending them? Did they want to include a note? The anonymous caller said, I'm doing this for my sister. I'll send you a $5 bill, special delivery, and promptly ended the call. Several weeks passed, and on Saturday, March 23rd, two special delivery envelopes arrived at their respective destinations. One at the Rock Floral Company, and another at the Melody McGilley Funeral Home. Each contained enough to cover the costs of flowers and a funeral, respectively. The address on both letters had been painstakingly written with pen and ruler in an effort to disguise the handwriting. In the 1930s, a decent typewriter might have cost between $30 and $50. 
However, with the average hourly wage at less than 50 cents, a typewriter might be seen as a luxury item. Enclosed with a payment for the bouquet of flowers was a handwritten note. The handwriting, disguised much like the envelope itself, was brief. One account suggested said, Love Forever. A newspaper spread on the case reported that they actually read, Leave for East. Both versions offer their own suggestions about the intent of the sender, but all accounts agree that each was signed with the name Louise under the short missive. Was Louise the woman in black? Was she the sister of the anonymous caller? Did she have some sort of connection to Don? For all of the questions that Louise generated, one thing felt clear. She cared for Owen. On Wednesday, March 26, Roland T. Owen's funeral was held in the Memorial Park Cemetery in Kansas City. The Reverend E.B. Shively of Roanoke Christian Church conducted the short ceremony. The only guests were detectives, perhaps on guard for whomever else might show up. For days following the funeral, detectives disguised as gravediggers watched the burial site. Neither Don nor Louise attended Owen's funeral, but another call did go out to the Kansas City Journal-Post that evening. A woman who refused to identify herself, but who many assume was Louise, intended to set the record straight concerning the details of the first Journal-Post article. In a single energetic torrent, the woman said, quote, Roland Owen was not buried in a potter's field. Call the undertakers and the florist, and you'll learn that Mr. Owen's funeral expenses were paid and a floral tribute was placed on his grave. This is the act of someone who cared about how people saw the dead man. So much so that she felt it necessary to correct a story published by the Journal Post. The police took note of the mysterious callers and attempted to track down both Don and Louise with no tangible success. Months passed, and in mid-May of 1935, the American Weekly magazine printed a melodramatic account of the murder they titled The Mystery of Room Number 1046. Within the story, the magazine also included a profile photo of Owen taken after his death. The photo itself makes Owen appear as though he's simply sleeping on his back, while also highlighting the scar above his left ear. Soon, the murder, mystery, and intrigue of Room 1046 faded from newsworthy to forgotten. For a year and a half, little progress was made. During the prolonged lull in the investigation, one noteworthy revelation came to light. Detectives found that a man matching Owen's description had spent the night at the St. Regis Hotel with another man. Sources aren't clear about the specific dates, but it appears as though it was at least a few weeks before the new year in December of 1934. This second man may have been Don, but either he was never identified or the authorities never released any information publicly and the case stalled again. Then, in the fall of 1936, an unidentified woman came across Owen's story. When she saw the photo alongside the article, she was struck by how similar Owen looked to the son of a friend of hers. Not only that, but she knew his family had not seen him since he left Birmingham, Alabama in April of 1934. She immediately went to her friend, Mrs. L. E. Ogletree, with the news. 
It'd been over a year and a half since Mrs. Ogletree had seen her son. When a family friend pointed out Owen's photo in the magazine, Mrs. Ogletree immediately recognized the profile. In November of 1936, Mrs. Ogletree confirmed with Kansas City PD that Owen was her missing son, Artemis. Mrs. Ogletree revealed that the scar along the left side of her son's head had resulted from a childhood burn involving hot grease. On November 2, 1936, papers nationwide heralded an end to the mystery. Roland T. Owen's actual name was Artemis Ogletree of Birmingham, Alabama. No exact birth date is available for Artemis, but his gravestone lists 1915 as his birth year. Despite the best estimates of the hotel president's staff, none of them could have guessed that he was only 19 or 20 at the time of his death. As Mrs. Ogletree corresponded with Kansas City detectives, she explained a timeline of her son's life after he left their family home nearly two years prior. These are the facts as we know them, cobbled together from multiple sources and versions of events. In early 1934, nearly a year before his death, a young Artemis left Alabama on holiday. He had decided to hitchhike to California. Mrs. Ogletree did not provide a reason for the holiday. Mrs. Ogletree claimed to have sent him plenty of funds while he was enjoying his time away, but as more time passed, all communication with her son ceased. It's likely that Artemis stopped corresponding with home after only a few months, but even that's a guess given the lack of information. It wasn't until early in 1935, sometime after the death of Roland T. Owen, that Mrs. Ogletree received a typewritten letter from Chicago signed Artemis. This would be the first of several to come. While the timeline of when the letters were sent isn't clear, it's known that Mrs. Ogletree wasn't yet aware that her son had already been murdered and was incapable of writing anything. Mrs. Ogletree was suspicious of the first letter for a multitude of reasons. First and foremost, her son had never used a typewriter before. While it's possible he might have learned in the time since they had been apart, it's unlikely that a young man set on becoming a professional wrestler considered typewriting to be a useful pursuit. Equally strange, the letter was written in an unfamiliar tone, full of slang words and strange turns of phrase. While the letters have been lost to time, useful information can be inferred from how something is written. From descriptions of the letters, it seemed as though the author knew Artemis enough to not only find his family's address, but convince Mrs. Ogletree that her son was alive and well. However, they did not know Owen well enough to emulate his speech patterns. Even more suspicious, Chicago is on the other side of the country from California. Mrs. Ogletree knew full well that her son had hitchhiked across the country to California, but the idea that he had potentially double-backed over 2,000 miles without a call or even a letter was strange. As it relates to the case, Chicago was just over 500 miles from Kansas City, where Owen had died. It would seem that the killer, if they were indeed the author of the letters, had fled Kansas City for another state. A few months later, sometime in May, another letter arrived, this time from New York. In the short, disingenuous message, Artemis claimed to have plans which would take him to Europe. This second letter was quickly followed by the special delivery of another note. 
the note suggested that Artemis had chosen to leave that very day and wouldn't be writing again for quite some time. Something about the strange manner and means of communication had finally convinced Mrs. Ogletree that her son was in serious trouble of some kind. She needed help and wasn't sure where to turn. One source claims that she actually corresponded with J. Edgar Hoover, the very first director of the FBI. It almost feels ridiculous that the FBI might pay attention to a concerned mother in Alabama, but those were the earliest days of the organization and protocol was different. It was in the mid-1930s that the Federal Bureau of Investigation was established, with Hoover instated as its head. For the last decade, the Bureau had been embroiled in a battle against the gangsters created by Prohibition. As the mid-30s hit, the last of the FBI's most wanted had been caught. The FBI had spare time on their hands. Hoover was not a figure known for his compassion or charity, But as someone with the power of an organization like the FBI backing him, it is reasonable to imagine a desperate Mrs. Ogletree writing him for help. It is not clear if she ever received word back. In fact, Mrs. Ogletree wouldn't hear anything about her son until August 12, 1935. Nearly four months after the last typewritten note, Mrs. Ogletree accepted a long-distance phone call from Memphis, Tennessee. The man on the other end of the line introduced himself as Jordan. The man spoke erratically. Mrs. Ogletree recalled that he often stuttered and was unable to string a coherent sentence together. Jordan claimed to know Artemis, going on to explain that Artemis had been responsible for saving his life once. Jordan promised Mrs. Ogletree that her son was healthy. Like any worried mother, she pressed him for details. Where in Europe was he? What news had Jordan heard? Was her son all right? Jordan surprised her by clarifying that Artemis wasn't in Europe, but had actually continued on and settled in Cairo, Egypt. Not only was Artemis in Egypt, Jordan continued, but he also married a wealthy woman in Cairo. Not to be deterred, Mrs. Ogletree pressed for more details. Why hadn't her son written and told her himself? Jordan retold the short story of how Artemis had gotten into a barroom brawl and had lost one of his thumbs in the fight. Because of this incident, he was unable to write home. This story might have been believable for several reasons. Mrs. Ogletree knew her son had dreams of becoming a professional wrestler and that he wasn't one to back down from a fight. What she couldn't understand was why Artemis didn't just use a typewriter. A typewriter didn't require thumbs, and if his last few letters to her were an indication, he clearly had picked up the ability to use one. Jordan's explanations fell apart, and he began to sound increasingly irrational. Unable to keep up the fabrication, Jordan hung up. This disquieting call left Mrs. Ogletree even more worried than before. Two months after the call with Jordan, Mrs. Ogletree was shown the coroner's photo of her son in a magazine and sent his photo into Kansas City Police. She knew she had been lied to and wanted to set the record straight. Her son was dead, and she knew it. It's unclear exactly what Mrs. Ogletree's motivations were, but she respected her son's burial place and let his body rest. The only thing that changed was the name on the gravestone— from Roland T. Owen to Artemis Ogletree. With the identity of the victim finally revealed and the perpetrator or perpetrators believed long gone, the case faded into obscurity. 
Then, in 2004, the story resurfaced. It was late on a day like any other when the phone at the Kansas City Public Library rang. Dr. John Arthur Horner answered the out-of-state call. The voice at the other end of the line was indistinct. The individual claimed that they and another person had been taking care of an elderly person's estate whom had recently passed away. They refused to identify themselves or the individual in question, but they did admit to having found a box amongst the deceased's possessions. In the box, they professed to finding old newspaper clippings pertaining to the murder in room 1046. But there was something else. They admitted to discovering a crucial piece of evidence from the murder that had been mentioned in the articles but was never found. Then, before they shared the details of their discovery, they hung up. Today, it's been just over 83 years since Artemis Ogletree was found tortured and left for dead in the hotel president. But two questions remain. Who did it? And what was in the box? We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. And now, back to our story. In the murder of Artemis Ogletree, no clear motive has ever been established, nor any suspects interrogated. But that doesn't mean we can't try to parse through the details ourselves. Due to conflicting accounts and missing information, this case is all over the board. We'll do our best to keep the facts straight and the timeline as simple as possible as we walk through each theory. In theory number one, we examine how dreams of athletic stardom led to Artemis's eventual murder. In theory number two, we'll explore the possibility that Artemis had to vie for Louise's affections against a second, more violent individual. Finally, in theory number three, we'll discuss whether Artemis was killed by the angry brother of a jilted lover. So let's get started with theory number one. In the spring of 1934, Artemis left his home in Birmingham, Alabama for the promised land of California. However, once he'd reached California, Artemis quickly discovered that the big leagues of wrestling wouldn't accept a fresh-faced kid from the South. As the months passed away and his money dried up, Artemis was forced to borrow money from whomever would lend it. This might have landed him in trouble with some form of an organized crime ring. By 1934, the country was in the midst of the Great Depression, and Prohibition had just ended the year previous. During this period in history, organized crime activity reached an all-time high as mafias rose to prominence. These syndicates were known for a multitude of illegal activities— rigging sporting events and lending copious amounts of money to desperate borrowers being chief among them. In California, it's possible that Artemis began either working for a criminal organization or, at the very least, borrowing from them while he trained as a wrestler. In the meantime, he acquired a few bad habits, like sleeping with sex workers. We can assume that he did not solicit sex while in Alabama, but based on his familiarity with the Kansas City woman in black, he must have picked up the habit somewhere in between. As weeks turned into months without success, it's likely that Artemis decided it'd be easier to skip town and head back east than pay his debts. So he left, possibly for home. If Tony Bernardi, the wrestling promoter out of Little Rock, Arkansas, was to be believed, Artemis claimed to have wrestled for a man named Charles Locke out of Omaha, Nebraska. 
Locke denied any interaction with Artemis or his aliases, but if there was any illegal activity, it's possible he was covering for himself. There are less than 200 miles between Omaha and Kansas City. It seems probable that Artemis might have passed through on his way back home. However, his situation changed once he reached Missouri, where it's likely he met the woman that he would eventually scorn for another. That woman could have been Louise, but that's educated speculation. Either way, Artemis fell for her and postponed his trip home. He might have thought that his alias was keeping him safe or that the mob was done looking for him. Either way, he stayed in Kansas City. He even found Bernardi in an effort to revive his boxing dreams. But staying put gave whoever was chasing him time to catch up. After the meeting with Bernardi that went nowhere, Artemis might have been depressed and fell back on his preferred vice, women. We briefly mentioned earlier that Artemis was seen in the company of other women visiting various bars. This is likely the point at which he had a falling out with the woman he had been dating and ceased all contact. Then Don rolled into town. In this theory, we'll surmise that Don was a mobster sent to deliver a hit and both the man in brown and the voice at the other end of the mysterious phone calls after Artemis died. But that leaves a gaping question. When Don caught up to Artemis, why didn't he kill him immediately? Why were at least a few days allowed to pass before Artemis was tortured? And why was Artemis allowed freedom at some times and locked in his room at others? The death blow to this theory comes post-mortem, with the calls and letters that went out to Mrs. Ogletree. If there were some organized crime syndicate responsible for Artemis' death, there'd be no reason to have his mother believe him still alive. There are too many outliers for this theory to hold water. We'll give this theory a 4 out of 10 on the believability scale and move on to the next possibility. In theory number two, an unfaithful Artemis was the victim of a love triangle gone terribly wrong. As much as this sounds like the plot of a bad daytime soap opera, it's not completely improbable. Here is where we have to take a few liberties to guess at the third party's actions based on the facts that we have. Envision for a moment your best friend Louise, the subject of your unrequited love, comes to you in tears about Artemis, a man who cheated on her with a sex worker. Naturally, you'd be angry and might even take the insult personally. Louise's brother, Don, has spent the last few days trying to talk sense into him, even going so far as to lock the man in his room, but nothing had worked. Now, with the guilty party free to leave town, it was time to act. As a family friend, they probably knew where Artemis was. He lured Artemis out of his hotel with a promise to fix things with Louise and her brother Don. They would all meet together across town. Sometime before 11 p.m. on January 3rd, Artemis arrived at the agreed-upon location. Expecting to have a conversation, Artemis removed his overcoat. Instead of a short discussion... He was attacked with something large and blunt, like a baseball bat or a crowbar, which, according to later analysis, fractured his skull in multiple places. But the family friend underestimated just how much of a fighter Artemis was and wasn't able to stop him from escaping. Now, disoriented and injured, Artemis could go to the police or a hospital and tell them he was attacked. But being involved with prostitution and other possible illegal activities it's reasonable to assume that Artemis might want to avoid drawing attention to himself. 
Sometime around 3 a.m., the woman in black returned to the hotel president with the family friend. This is where the elevator operator, Charles Blocker, first saw Artemis head back to where he was staying, the hotel president. After a few hours of mulling over a plan, the family friend paid a sex worker, the woman in black, to visit room 1046 to see if Artemis was actually there. They both made sure to get off on the ninth floor so as not to raise suspicions before heading up to room 1046 by a side stairwell. The man in brown and the woman in black enter room 1046. But instead of relying on surprise alone, the man in brown has brought a knife and a bottle of acid to hurt Artemis. It's likely some sort of threat was made to the woman in black to get her to cooperate. Artemis was then tied to the bed. It's possible that the man in brown didn't want to kill Artemis outright. The bottle of acid suggests that the man in brown wanted to injure more than murder. But the man in brown didn't realize just how upset he was. He snapped, stabbing Artemis in the chest three times. Horrified, the woman in black grabbed the phone to call the police. But the man in brown threatened her and, afraid for her life, she fled the hotel room. Panicked, the man in brown began to quickly gather everything from the room, including Artemis's clothes and toiletries. In his rush to leave, he forgot to hang the phone back in its cradle, but remembered to lock the room door from the outside before hurrying off. Many hotels in the 1930s had chutes for garbage and laundry that ran the height of the building. If the hotel president had something similar, the man in brown could have easily dumped everything into the trash where it would have been buried by refuse. Then, on the ninth floor, he caught the elevator down and ran off into the night. This version of the crime would explain why, when Artemis was asked who had attacked him, he hadn't given a name. Perhaps he didn't know. However, this theory has very little evidence to substantiate it. There are far too many assumptions that need to be made about the killer's identity, motive, and knowledge of the victim to lend much truth to this theory. And again, the letters sent after Artemis's death suggest the killer had to know his victim in some capacity. Even if the family friend had some basic knowledge of Artemis, it's clear that Louise didn't fully know who she had been seeing. Her call to the Kansas City Journal-Post suggests that she believed his name was Roland T. Owen. A stranger, especially one who didn't know his victim's real name, wouldn't have been able to contact Mrs. Ogletree. This theory falls closer to a 2 out of 10 on the believability scale. Much more likely, this is a case of Occam's razor. The simplest answer is probably the correct one. Which brings us to theory number three. The brother of a jilted lover avenged his sister's honor. Sometime after his arrival in Kansas City, likely in the late fall or early winter of 1934, Artemis Ogletree began to date a young woman named Louise. For whatever reason, Artemis introduced himself as Roland T. Owen. Louise's older brother, Don, didn't get involved until Artemis was spotted drinking with two other women. It was then that Don first confronted him at the Hotel St. Regis, sometime in mid-December. In an effort to get away from Don, Artemis began to use even more aliases. Artemis first used the name Eugene K. Scott at the Mulebach Hotel on New Year's Day, January 1st, 1935. 
Unhappy with the price and room placement, he switched to the hotel president on January 2nd and made the mistake of signing the register under the name Roland T. Owen. Which is probably how Don found him. As we discussed in episode one, when funeral arrangements were made by an unknown benefactor, they specifically used the name Roland T. Owen. If they'd known Artemis by another name, it's likely they would have corrected the various publications as they had done regarding the pauper's grave. Instead, they seemed intent on making sure he was remembered correctly, which means they believed his true name was Roland before his death. Over the next two days, Don met up with Artemis in his room to discuss what had happened. Unable to trust that Artemis wouldn't run again, Don took his room key and locked the door from the outside. Which begs the question, how did Artemis escape from room 1046 on the night of January 3rd? We've said that Artemis was found across town, running down the road at 11 p.m. by a confused Robert Lane. Considering that room 1046 was 10 stories up with a sheer drop, it's not likely that the window was a viable option. So the only other way he could have left the room without breaking down his door was to be taken. The hotel staff didn't recall seeing Artemis and another man leave the hotel, but it seems unlikely that Robert Lane misidentified the man he saw under such strange circumstances only a few nights before. At this unknown location across town, Don, not particularly broad or tall in stature as described by the elevator operator Charles Blocker, was overpowered by Artemis. Before Artemis could escape, Don was able to deliver several strong blows to his head, cracking his skull. The time frame of those wounds is consistent with the analysis done by Dr. Flanders and later a city coroner. Don, probably the man in brown, enlisted the help of the woman in black to pay Artemis a visit. There are likely two reasons for this. One, the woman in black could act as a sort of scout, and two, she was a familiar face that would set Artemis at ease. Through their discussions from the previous few days, Artemis might have admitted which sex worker he had been seeing, which gave Don the information he would need later. At about 3 a.m., Don and the woman in black went to see Artemis. To throw suspicion, the duo got off on the ninth floor and hiked the final story to the tenth, where they let themselves in to room 1046. Perhaps fearing that the woman in black might run and alert the authorities, Don kept her with him. No murder weapon was ever found. The only hint of a dangerous item was a sliver of glass that was missing from a broken cup in the bathroom. Perhaps improvising with the sliver, Don exacted his punishment on Artemis, causing the woman in black to panic. Similar to our second theory, she grabbed for the phone at one point and left fingerprints that the detectives would notice but never identify. This is when Artemis finally admitted that his name wasn't Roland T. Owen and revealed his true identity, begging for his life. Further incensed by the shocking revelation, Don grew even more violent and, as anyone might, the woman in black made a run for it. Despite the dangerous circumstances, the woman in black knew that everything had to appear normal. She took the stairs back to the ninth floor and caught the elevator down. Perhaps she even believed that having a witness like Charles Blocker would acquit her of potential blame. This was when Don knew he had to speed things up. 
He swept the room for any traces he might have left behind and gathered all of Artemis's clothing. Perhaps Dom thought that a man without clothes wouldn't be able to leave the room and find help. Of course, it could have been an impulsive act that would eventually create the most enigmatic aspect of the case. Before he left, Don took the key with him to lock the door from the outside. In his hurry, he forgot to disconnect the phone. He left about 15 minutes after the woman in black, descending to the ninth floor before summoning the elevator. Along the way, he must have disposed of the clothing in his hands as it would have been seen as suspicious. On his way down to the ninth floor, he probably found something like a laundry or garbage chute to throw away the stolen belongings, much as we described in Theory 2. At the time of Don's escape from the crime scene, it was close to 4 a.m. Artemis wouldn't be helped until nearly seven hours later, around 11 a.m. In an effort to assuage his guilt, Don promised his sister to pay for the funeral and burial, but only after Louise had made a call to the newspaper. After Artemis was buried, Don left town. Don first found himself in Chicago, possibly trying to evade the police. In an effort to keep the connection between him and Owen, the man he now knew to be Artemis, hidden, he found Ogletree's home address and wrote a letter. If Mrs. Ogletree thought her son were still alive, she wouldn't give up the man's identity. Based on the locations from which the letters and calls originated, the murderer clearly traveled from place to place, fearful of authorities, but desperately trying to keep Artemis alive in his mother's mind. Still terrified of being caught, Don moved to New York, where he sent Mrs. Ogletree a second letter and claimed that Artemis was planning to take a trip to Europe. This must have been where Don saw an opportunity to end the letters, because he sent a second special delivery note saying that Artemis had left the country that very night. As time passed, Don became increasingly erratic. Against his best judgment, he called Mrs. Ogletree from Memphis, Tennessee. He fabricated a story about how Artemis had actually gotten married in Cairo, Egypt, and lost a thumb, rendering him unable to write. Then, in the fall of 1936, almost exactly a year and a half after Artemis was found in room 1046, Mrs. Ogletree saw the picture of her dead son in a magazine article. The news went public, and for a moment, the entire nation knew that Artemis Ogletree had been the man in room 1046. With the truth exposed, Don ceased all communications with Mrs. Ogletree. For years, Don collected articles about the mystery of room 1046 that he put in a box and hid from the rest of the world. Later, his death prompted the mysterious phone call to the Kansas City Public Library in 2004. The caller, however, tantalizingly left out what item from the case was in the box. Without any hard evidence, there's no way to be sure about what it was. But we do have one guess. The original key to room 1046. Without a modern-day Sherlock Holmes on the case, the twists, turns, and overall lack of information on the mystery of room 1046 can feel confounding. However, this theory holds the most promise. Coupled with a few details from the first theory regarding Artemis and his travels to California, our final theory does feel the most likely. We're giving it a 7 out of 10. While we will probably never know who actually murdered Artemis Ogletree, 
The oddities of this case still capture the imagination of armchair detectives, still hoping to solve the crime. For our money, final resolution lies in that box, which, much like Ogletree himself, could already be long gone and buried. Don't forget to subscribe to Unexplained Mysteries on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Thursday. And remember... Never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Edward Hamill and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>